0: I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with leading experts in the field. Uh, With us today is Colin Call. He's a professor at Georgetown University and a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and, most recently, uh, the National Security Advisor to Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, Colin, welcome to the program. Great to be here. So, Colin, You have probably done more uh, in actual policy making towards the Middle East than any political scientist in our generation. Uh, Does it matter that you were a political scientist uh, when you went in and began trying to grapple with all of these incredibly difficult problems uh, in the Middle East?
1: I mean, I think there are times where some of the theories that were taught in graduate school or that we engage uh, through our own research as, as, uh, as professors matter. I mean, I can think back to the opening days of the Arab Spring where uh, there were actually a number of political scientists in the Obama administration at the time, people like Mike McFaul, Jeremy Weinstein, people like that who uh, uh, were all grappling with what theories of, de- of democratization and democratic transition meant and what were the best analogs for what was happening in the Arab world. Uh, you know, we had all these great ideas about whether, in the case of Egypt, for example, it made more sense for them to hold presidential elections first as opposed to parliamentary elections because the political science literature suggested that, in the absence of viable political parties, if you had p- parliamentary elections first, that the Muslim Brotherhood would dominate, whereas if you had, uh, uh, presidential elections, maybe you could get a counterweight uh, to the Muslim Brotherhood emerging. And we wrote up a nice white paper on that and passed it to Field Marshal Tentawi, and he threw it out the window and ignored <laughs> it. Uh, so, uh, no, I mean, there are times where kind of, I would say kind of mid-level theory um, uh, uh, is, is useful. but But stepping back, I think the more generic answer is, you know, the big paradigmatic debates that we have in international relations and comparative politics I think are less relevant than the style of thinking that academics bring uh, to the table. That is, uh, a degree of analytical rigor, uh, the importance of questioning assumptions, the importance of realizing that even when people aren't explicitly being theoretical, all human beings have theory of how the world works in their heads, and that those theories uh, generate, in essence, testable hypotheses. And the difference is... In the academy, we tend to be retrodictive. That is, we have a hypothesis and then we look to the past to try to validate it or invalidate it. And then we draw certain implications for the future. Whereas in the policy universe, typically uh, policymakers are presented a series of options that are prospective. uh, But they're just as theoretical about how the world works. So I I think it's more a style of of thinking. And the last point I would make is uh, one of the luxuries I had... Um, being the national security advisor for uh, for Vice President Biden was in my role as part of the interagency deliberations and as a standing member of the deputies committee, I didn't come in representing a bureaucracy or an organization. There were no parochial interests other than, you know, I needed to represent the views of the vice president when he had them on a particular issue, but it really allowed me to speak my mind. And so it was kind of the, the best uh, uh, place for an academic to be, kind of in the room, in the huddle, uh, but relatively free to say what I thought.
0: Now, when, when you have been outside of the administration uh, before 2009 and then in between 2011, 2013, uh, you wrote quite a lot about uh, about policy in the Middle East, about Iraq, about the Iran deal. And uh, is there a difference in the way you approach these issues when you're on the inside versus being on the outside? Are there things that you might have done differently as an outside analyst if you had known what was going on internally and, and vice versa? I mean, I think
1: the broad, in some respects, no. Uh, the The broad contours of a lot of these things were not completely dissimilar uh, when you got into government. Um, a good example is prior to going into the Deputy uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense job at the Pentagon at the beginning of 2009, um, I'd done a lot of research on Iraq. I'd traveled there a couple of times as a think tanker in addition to my uh, uh, Georgetown gig, and um, And had written a lot about, you know, the prospects of the surge working out and what the major uh, political challenges were. You and I had a bunch of exchanges in this uh, period uh, online and and in print. Um, And I I did not find when I came into government that the Iraq that I experienced was dramatically different, Uh, uh, even though I'd only been there a couple of times as an academic. I went there 16 times in over uh, three years uh, as a defense official. but it wasn't. It wasn't hugely different. Uh, similarly, when I left the defense job and went back into the academy and did a lot of work on the Iranian nuclear uh, question, um, now obviously I was bringing some of my experience from the defense department working on that issue into the 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 research I was doing on, on Iran's nuclear program. But when I went back into uh, government, again, it wasn't like it was an alien universe where I was talking about the Iranian nuclear program and kind of what diplomatic uh, solutions might be out there for dealing with it, that that was completely different in kind of the academic and think tank world versus the government world. But uh, I think what academics uh, who don't get a lot of time to spend uh, in the policy community probably... Uh, Misunderestimate, underestimate uh, to use a phrase of a <laughs> former uh, commander-in-chief, is actually just how smart and rigorous uh, the policy community is. I think that w- there's a tendency on the outside to believe that, you know, b- basically policymakers are buffoons, the civil service is not all that talented, and that, you know, if only they pursued my really big idea that I wrote, you know, that I wrote in that the last three paragraphs of my international security article or a 20-page uh, uh uh, policy report that I did for some think tank. If only they were, you know, as smart as I was, uh, we'd be doing all the right things. And my experience is that actually the vast majority of uh, good ideas that are out there are are deliberated on the inside. I mean, a perfect example is probably no area of the Obama administration's foreign policy uh, came under more criticism than the approach to Syria. Uh, and yet every proposal, whether it was arming the opposition or putting in place a no-fly zone or safe zones or standoff strikes uh, or, I mean, you name it, whatever big idea was, was out there in think tank land or in the academic uh, world, they were deliberated over and over and over again. And so it doesn't mean that policymakers always make uh, the right decision. They're human beings. They have incomplete information. They make wrong decisions all the time. Uh, but they're a lot smarter uh, than you think. And the last point I will make just briefly is that... I also think academics probably don't appreciate the degree to which things that seem relatively banal, like process uh, and budgets and whether human beings are getting enough sleep, uh, actually affects uh, the the outcome of certain things. And those are just constraints, uh, bureaucratic and human. Uh, that's I think sometimes you don't appreciate from the you know looking from the vantage point of the ivory tower.
0: Well, let's go back to uh, the example that you just raised, uh, the Syria example. So let's take an example like a uh, no-fly zone or the arming of the opposition. You know, walk us through a little bit about how kind of outside ideas were developed and presented versus how they were discussed on the inside.
1: Well, a really good example, I, I look. I, let's take the no-fly zone uh, I- example. Um, I think that a lot of the ways in which uh, the academic, in particular the think tank community, tended to talk about it was uh, that, in essence, uh, we could put, we could, we could do what what we did in uh, in Iraq uh, after uh, defeating Saddam's army uh, in the Gal- in the first Gulf War. Uh, we could impose a similar situation in Syria, and we could effectively put a no fly zone in some combination of the north and the south, and prevent Assad's regime uh, from uh, dropping barrel bombs on civilians um, and. In, in so doing, create pressure on the regime and tilt the battlefield dynamics, uh, at least slightly in favor of the opposition. Um, I think that the way policymakers thought about this was uh, questions of how resource intensive uh, would it be. Uh, the Pentagon continuously came to the president and told him it would require hundreds and hundreds of aircraft. Even before the campaign against the so called Islamic State, that's an enormous resource trade off from other uh, activities going on uh, in the region. Um, uh, so, for example, your ability to posture against Iran prior to the Iranian nuclear deal, where we were worried about a, a contingency in which the uh, Israelis struck uh, the Iranian nuclear program, or we might have to take action. So, should we be distracted by a major military campaign uh, in uh, Syria? And then, obviously, um, uh, from Late to 2014 onward, there were enormous resource trade-offs between uh, putting in place a no-fly zone and the ability to wage a campaign against the Islamic uh, the Islamic State. Uh, other issues uh, that I think policymakers grappled with is all right. Well, the Pentagon tells the president the only way you can put a no-fly zone in Syria and have our pilots police it safely is to take out. Syria's integrated air defense system. We know that because we effectively did that to Saddam uh, uh, when we enforced that, and every time they turn their radars on, we uh, uh, dropped a missile uh, or a bomb on them. And we also know from the no-fly zone that we imposed over Libya's, uh, Gaddafi's Libya, uh, that you have to take out their integrated air defense system. Well. Syria has one of the most intricate and advanced uh, air defense systems in that part of the world. So that's a big piece of business. That means bombing a lot of regime targets. And so the questions the president asks or that has to grapple with are, is, are you willing to go to war against the regime? Uh, and also, under what authority do you do that? No UN mandate, no regional consensus. And we have a Congress who couldn't even agree on an authorization for the use of military force construct for the Islamic State. Uh, and when uh, we had the debate about uh, the possible strikes in the context of the chemical weapons uh, red line, Congress didn't want to have any part of that either. Uh, so the types of questions that the, the, the president would ask is, how resource intensive, what are the trade-offs, what is the legal uh, what is the legal authority? And then last but not least, tell me how this ends. Tell me how this actually accomplishes the objective. Oh, well, it might tilt the battlefield somewhat, really? Well, what happens when he compensates by using more artillery and ground fire? Uh, Because in the case of Libya, for example, the consensus was a no-fly zone wasn't be enough. It had to be civilian protection mission, which meant bombing a lot of targets on the ground. Okay, well, so the next step will be that we're bombing all of those uh, targets. Uh, But you have to do it in a way that doesn't completely crack the regime, because, of course, everybody agreed that the collapse of Assad's regime would Parallel the uh, have similar effects to what you saw in Libya and in Iraq, where extremist groups would fill uh, the void. So you didn't you had to do just enough uh, military pressure to somehow have some effect without doing so much that it cracked uh, the regime. And every time the president asked somebody, "Tell me how this ends. Tell me how this ends," uh, the answer was the next step on a slippery slope into a quagmire that the president was keen to avoid, and that the vast majority of the American people uh, were uh, keen to avoid.
0: So probably the, the issue that you have worked on the most, at least publicly, and I assume also on the inside, was was the nuclear agreement with Iran. And I think that this is also uh, kind of a hyper-politicized issue, and it's one where there's been an enormous amount of public commentary. What do you think are some of the things that political scientists did which helped to accomplish the deal, and what do you think are some of the things that were out there in the public debate uh, by political scientists in general uh, or the analytical community, which you think just got it wrong and which were not uh, really capturing what was going on in those negotiations and and what they were trying to achieve?
1: I mean, I think where academics uh, were ahead of where the policy was, but ended up being was a recognition that. Um, you are not going to solve this problem um, unless you gave the regime some face-saving way out on the enrichment question. And that's because experts, and I'm talking about academic experts, uh, regional experts who looked at Iran, uh, I'm not talking about the instant experts uh, who, uh, you know, stumbled upon the Iran issue uh, once they turned their attention to something something else but the real experts on Iran recognized how much the the regime in Tehran as abhorrent as the regime is had invested its domestic legitimacy in the nuclear program they had they had invested you know between 1 and 200 billion dollars and they had framed this as an issue of national rights and nuclear rights and there was just no there hardly any disagreement, I think, among actual Iran experts. I couldn't think of one, except maybe eventually Ray Take came uh, to a different place. But with the exception, perhaps, of Ray, I, I can't think of an actual bona fide Iran expert on, on planet Earth that believed that you were going to resolve this problem without giving the regime some face-saving way out on enrichment. Um, and that was, I think, an inflection point in the decision of the Obama administration, which was ultimately not... To drive the program to zero, not because we wouldn't prefer a world in which uh, every nut and bolt of Natanz and the Fordo enrichment facility and everything else was dismantled, uh, but because that that perfect world, that perfect scenario, uh, was impossible uh, to achieve, uh, no matter how much uh, pressure uh, mm-hmm. you were going to uh, you were going to put on the regime. So I think recognizing that you were going to have to uh, have to deal with that was an insight that we um, that we definitely got or that was out there in the in the academic uh, study of Iran that made its way into the policy
0: uh, process well so we in, in my class and I'm sure in a lot of other classes we use the Iran nuclear negotiations as a way of, of kind of grappling with bargaining theory and kind of you know, rational choice bargaining theories of international negotiations. And w- was that relevant at all to how you thought um, about those negotiations? Did the key concepts of bargaining theory inform how our negotiators evaluated proposals and, and tried to deal with things? I think that they I think they did.
1: Uh, I mean, not explicitly, but implicitly, I, although I think that there's a, there was a recognition that there, in essence, was a two-level game uh, happening here in the sense that, you know, in the broadest sense, uh, as abhorrent as the regime in Iran is, they're not an irrational actor. They're, they're you know, they, they've shown themselves at least sensitive to uh, high degrees of cost, threats to their own survival. Uh, they're not, you know, they say a lot of terrible things. They're not crazy uh, or mm-hmm. messianic. Uh, So they were sufficiently rational that you could bargain with them, but there was also a recognition that uh, Iran's politics are not monolithic, and even though they're an authoritarian uh, regime with a supreme leader, uh, he's actually not completely supreme, and that he uh, rules over a bureaucracy uh, and a set of institutions that is highly factionalized, and where public opinion is not completely irrelevant, and the outcomes of elections are not completely irrelevant, uh, and that there can be more or less bargaining space uh, depending on uh, you know who's in power, uh, and so when it was you know Ahmadinejad as uh, as the president of Iran and Jalili uh, as uh, the lead negotiator, you had a very different uh, scenario than when you had Rouhani as president and Zarif as the negotiator. So same supreme leader, same system, uh, uh, but a different uh, set of outcomes. And I think one of the things that just to to give one plug for I think uh, a book that actually tells us a lot about Iran. And how things ended up is uh, is Edel Solingen's book on nuclear logics, uh, because she makes the argument, I, which I think bears bears out at least in the Iran case, which is that. A lot depends on whether the elite factions that dominate any given regime care about international integration or not. If they care about international integration, then they're more sensitive to international costs, whether it be isolation or economic pressure. If they don't care, like in the case of North Korea, for example, uh, then actually sanctions and pressure don't work so well. And what was interesting is you had a controlled... Uh, uh, a case study in which you had a you had the factional makeup of the Iranian regime shift between uh, the Ahmadinejad period and the Rouhani period to a set of moderates and pragmatists in the Rouhani period who are not good guys uh, but they do actually care about Iran's reintegration and they have a different theory about how Iran becomes a great power in the world. They believe that basically if Iran is normalized then Iran will normally will will inevitably become a leading power in the region because of you know how smart their people are, how large uh, their populace and their economy is, how strong their military is, and their kind of the civilizational backbone uh, of Iran. So they believe that if Iran just doesn't kind of make too many waves uh, and is and is normalized, they'll do fine. Whereas uh, hardliners and principalists uh, in Iran uh, tend to believe that Iran's uh, path to glory goes through resistance. Uh, And that, in fact, they're they're revolutionary actors that take pride in Iran's isolation because they think that that vindicates their opposition to the West uh, and its ideology. So it matters. Iran writ large is is a rational Mm -hmm. actor, but it is not a unitary one. Uh, And these factional uh, issues matter uh, quite a bit and mattered a huge amount in the negotiations.
0: So one of the things which is which really characterized the last few years in the Middle East is the turbulence between the United States and a lot of its major regional allies, and uh, you know, and so. How did you approach that in terms of trying to understand the importance uh, or even the ability to sustain regional order in the sense that things are going through these enormous changes, the Iran deal, the Arab Spring, Syria, and you find yourself, you know repeatedly, at least in public, uh, clashing with Israel, with saudi arabia, with 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 Egypt, with key uh, with key allies. So w- what does that tell you about our our understandings about regional order and about America's place in the region?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and the one and one that we had to grapple with uh, over and over again. And you know, I'm I'm not not going to pretend that we got it right all of the time. I, I I can tell you the the way that President Obama thought about it, um, and a lot goes back actually to the speech that he gave to the U.N. General Assembly uh, in September of 2013, where he kind of outlined the basic interests uh, that the United States has in the region, and he defined the vital interests that we would be willing to use military force uh, to protect, even unilaterally if necessary. necessary as you know. Uh, defeating and disrupting international terrorist organizations that threaten the American people, the homeland, um, uh, preventing regional aggression, basically preventing uh, a state from engaging in external aggression to impose hegemony uh, in in the region. Uh, A third uh, is the WMD. Uh, issue uh, preventing the uh, the development or use of weapons of mass destruction, uh, and the fourth is preventing a, a you know major disruption of uh, the flow of oil and gas uh, to the world market, which is not directly uh, applicable to our economy in the sense that we don't buy a lot of uh, oil and gas from that part of the world, um, but it does have an effect on global prices and a huge effect on our on our uh, allies and, and partners all around uh, Europe and, and Asia. So. Those were the four interests uh, that the president said we would be willing to go to war to protect by ourselves if we had to. And then there was another set of interests that were important but not so vital that we would see force as a good option, and certainly wouldn't want to want to do it by ourselves. And that was really the basket of, you know, promotion of democracy and human rights, addressing humanitarian uh, uh, challenges, uh, et cetera. The reason I mention this is that the president, President Obama, believed that. Um, We could accomplish certain things through the use of military force, but we've never been able to transform the region through the use of military force. And look, I'm talking to a lot of political scientists here, so I'm going to use a two-by-two table uh, example. Uh, And this is to to clarify exactly how uh, uh, Obama thought about this. So if you think about the two most muscular ways in which the United States can express its military power in the Middle East, we can change a regime. So yes, no, one axis is do you use the military for regime change, yes, no. And then the other axis would be we can put boots on the ground to try to stabilize uh, a situation or transform a society, yes, no. All right, we got a two by two table. Walk through the last 25 years and you see the problems that emerge. In Iraq, we change the regime, we try to stabilize the country, it's a disaster. In Libya, we change the regime. We don't try to stabilize the country. It's a disaster. In Syria, we don't change the regime. We don't try to stabilize the country. It's a disaster. And in Lebanon in the early 1980s, we don't change the regime, but we do send Marines in to try to stabilize the situation, and it's a disaster. So if if every example and its opposite leads you to a very dark place, it doesn't mean you never use military force, but it does mean you have to be extraordinarily humble and modest about what it can achieve. And so for obama what it can achieve is we can kill bad guys and disrupt groups that threaten uh, american uh, uh, personnel american citizen um, and american interests so the counterterrorism campaign which was pursued ruthlessly uh, across uh, the region uh, if you absolutely have to you can you can maybe go after uh, a wmd program and set it back although only for a period uh, of time um, probably not as a permanent uh, solution but Nevertheless, uh, you could maybe achieve that objective. We achieved a limited uh, objective in the case of getting Saddam out of out of Kuwait in 1991. But what we aren't able to do is fundamentally remake these places. That gets me to that's a really long windup to answering your question, which is, we found that in the case of countries like you know Israel or the Saudis or others, they wanted us to do two things ultimately that the president was unwilling to do because of his overall theory of, what, of the role of military force in the region. One was they very much wanted us to engage in regime change, especially as it related to Iran. At the end of the day, the Israelis, the Saudis, Will, would never, will never tolerate an Iran that's a strong actor in the region as long as this regime is in, is in power. And they were, they were, at the end of the day, more concerned about the regime and its hegemonic ambitions than its nuclear program, even though uh, the Israelis continually dialed up you know, the existential language on the nuclear program. They did not believe that the threat from Iran, whether it's nuclear or anything else, could be settled with anything short of regime change. And so that was their preference to basically leave the sanctions in place until the regime in Tehran went out of existence, and if they crossed some mythical red line, to smash them like we smashed Saddam. All right, so that was there, and we just weren't going to. You know, the president wasn't going to go in for that. Uh, we'd seen how that. You know, the 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 challenges that created in Iraq, and you know, uh, Iran is a country twice as big uh, with the most competent uh, irregular forces on on planet Earth. So not a great idea to do regime change. But nevertheless, I think some of our allies felt differently. Uh, the second issue is. The president was extraordinarily clear about defending our allies from external aggression, which is why uh, we did so much to bolster their own capabilities, unprecedented amounts Mm -hmm. of military assistance to Israel, unprecedented steps to maintain their qualitative military edge, even as we were providing unprecedented degrees of security assistance to our partners in the Gulf, uh, to Jordan, uh, and and otherwise. But what we weren't going to do is give them a blank check to drag us into conflicts that we believe didn't serve their interests, and it certainly didn't serve our interests. Uh, and so whether that be some of the activities uh, that the Israelis engaged in places like Gaza or some of the activities that the Saudis engaged in places like Bahrain uh, or Yemen. And Yemen is a really good example of how difficult this, this balancing act is to pull off because we made it clear to the Saudis that we would have their back as it relates to threats emanating from Yemen against the Saudi homeland. So we would provide them information to help them target Houthi, you know, uh, ballistic missiles and other strategic systems uh, that could threaten uh, cross-border attacks against uh, the Saudis. But what we weren't going to go all in on is their campaign to basically, you know, win their side of the civil war uh, in Yemen and in the process kill a bunch of civilians. Uh, so, frankly. This, this kind of balancing act probably left everybody dissatisfied. The Saudis were upset because we didn't go all in uh, with them. In places like Yemen, they felt like we, we were betrayed. We didn't have them back, their back. And critics of the Saudis and what they were doing criticized us for supporting them in any way. Uh, so I, there are risks in this kind of messy middle ground of kind of being damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, but I think it all goes back to Obama's fundamental humility about what military force can and can't accomplish.
0: Well, let's build on that just for one second. So back uh, a number of years ago now, uh, you and I wrote this piece which uh, for the Washington Quarterly, and one of the things that we talked about, in addition to yeah. a lot of what you just said, was the need to kind of reach out and engage uh, and support uh, Arab publics. And um, after doing this, as long as you've done it now from the policy side, and given the results that you've just described, I think accurately, right? I mean, everybody hates what we do, right? doesn't matter what we do. Everybody hates it. I mean, do you still what, – what does that do to your thinking about the possibility of influencing or engaging uh, with regional publics?
1: I mean, look, I, I'm highly dissatisfied with where we are in the Middle East. But at the end of the day, um, I still come down about where we were in that article, which is – What we can accomplish is we can defend our interests when they are directly threatened. We can defend our allies and our partners when they are directly threatened. And then, and that's about all we can do in the Middle East. And we cannot effectively transform that part of the world through the use of military forces, at least not in a way that's sustainable. And we can come back to that because I think it's worth thinking about, say, how the Bush administration thought about things like the surge and the Obama administration thought about things like the counter uh, Islamic State uh, campaign. Um, but but I think we can, we can achieve modest objectives to protect our interests and our partners in the near term while playing a very long game on the other stuff. Because it's not about us. It's never been about us. And every time we try to get too involved, we don't know enough. And even where we do, we don't have enough levers. And even where we do, we get blamed for everything. And it's opposite. And Egypt is a perfect example of that. So I think thinking about the civil society issues the, uh, you know, encouraging economic development, encouraging business relationships, like a long-term, uh, seismic shift in the region is probably what we need. But I'm just not confident that, that, that we are in the driver's seat. And the last time we thought we could transform the region, um, by, you know, uh, uh, going to war and spending trillions of dollars, it didn't
0: work out so well. So last question then. So if you're, Imagine that you're speaking to uh, a group of of Middle East specialists, not uh, security studies, not uh, American foreign policy specialists, but people who write about the Middle East um, and have deep knowledge of those countries, and and for them, they're taking this kind of outside-in approach to U.S. foreign policy. What would you want to say to that kind of community about what they should understand about how U.S. foreign policy is made or, or, or how it's conducted that would help them to better, uh, you know, kind of better conceptualize uh, America's role in the Middle East?
1: I mean, I think one thing I would say is uh, that people in the U.S. government, believe it or not, on most given days are trying to do the right thing. Our aid officers are working with contractors to help little girls get educated or provide food to refugees. Our military is taking action with extraordinary uh, due diligence to their responsibilities under international law uh, to go after folks who are really bad folks who, no kidding, threaten uh, the lives of of American citizens and people uh, around the world. Our State Department... Uh, people take enormous risks to try to find peaceful diplomatic solutions. Um, that they that I think that there's a can be a tendency among some um, uh, Arabists and other uh, uh, students of history in the Middle East to think the worst of the United States and to think of us as as just another outside imperial uh, power. Um, I mean, I, it's not to say we haven't made a huge number of mistakes. We've talked a lot about that on this podcast as well, and we will make future. Uh, mistakes uh, down the road. Um, but on any given day, I think Americans are trying to do the right thing uh, in a really, really difficult uh, environment. Um, so I would say that. The second, I think, is that, and this is just a general uh, tendency, that that there's extraordinary utility in having deep, deep expertise. Um, but you do have a forest trees problem. Uh, and then my sense is that a lot of times experts uh, of the Middle East are particular experts on a particular country or a particular moment in time in a particular country. Uh, And when you combine that kind of soda straw view of the region with a kind of conspiratorial view about what the U.S. seeks to accomplish, it doesn't actually give a lot of academics of the region the right perspective to engage in constructive criticism of what the United States is doing. That having it, trying to take a step back, looking regionally and giving American policymakers every once in a while the benefit of the doubt would actually allow the academy to, uh, to I think, contribute a lot more constructively.
0: Well, great thing. So we've been speaking with Colin Call of Georgetown University and former deputy assistant uh, to the president and the national security advisor to Vice President Biden. Uh, Colin, thanks for joining the show.
1: Thanks for having me.